I'm going to take us to Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through to 20 is going to be where we're going to find ourselves this morning. And uh, we're going to do something a little bit different today in terms of, um, I, I really want to try to teach through some subject matter. Is that all right with everybody? Four of you over here. Perfect. Okay. I guess I'm going to talk to this side over here. Come on. I'm going to teach through a few things. Is that all right with everybody? Okay. Um, and I want to, I want to say it this way. Um, my heart, my heart right now is that you would get the, the tone and the tenor of this message and what I really do believe God wants to communicate to us as a church. Uh, that's my heart today. Um, I had a, I had a mentor this week uh, say something along these lines to me, and it's kind of stuck out with me, and it's honestly altered the way that I've um, decided to preach this message today. Uh, he said to me that if people walk away from church on a Sunday morning without having been challenged or have a little bit of an ouch, you were a great speaker, but a bad pastor. Can I be your pastor this morning? Is that all right with everybody? Some of you are like, I don't know. How about just be a good speaker? That's fine. <laughs> Can I be your pastor this morning? Will you give me permission to be your pastor this morning? Um, and that's honestly my aim. I, I, my aim is not to be a good speaker today. My, my aim is to communicate the heart of Jesus to our church. Um, and I know for Erica and I, we're really leaning into this this. Um, what feels like a, um, just a pressing on us as a pastoral team as well to really pastor our church um, in this season. How many of you would agree with me? Things are changing all around us all the time right now. And uh, so I, we're, just, we're just prophetically sensing that. We're, we're, we're seeing that, what's happening around us. And so I just, I just want, you to, I want to give you permission to lean in with me today. I'm going to say some challenging things um, and some things that are going to bring highlight to what Scripture is saying. I think we'll all be better when we leave here. Uh, but my explicit goal today is to be your pastor, not a great communicator today. Does that work with everybody? And so uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20 says this. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit of the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And when I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, when I turned and saw, uh, then I turned in to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of a cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. What beautiful imagery we're, we're seeing here. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is a moment where Jesus is affirming who he is as the Savior, the death, burial, and resurrection of himself, and letting all of us know that he has defeated death, hell, and the grave, and he holds the keys to death in his hands. Come on, is anybody thankful for Jesus? So he says, therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. And then he explains to us what we're seeing. He says, the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
So we have a very clear direction as to what it is that this commentary over the next few chapters is going to be directed at. And that is the seven churches of Revelation. These churches are not churches that are ethereal in concept. They're not metaphors. They're not, they're not anything like that. These are very real churches that we're talking about. Does that make sense? So with that, as we continue in our series, War Horses, I want to speak to you from this subject today, a risen savior and the report card of a church. A risen savior and the report card of a church as we begin processing, as we begin the process of looking at the seven churches of Revelation. And will you pray with me just one more time as we settle into God's word? Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that it's alive, it's active, it's powerful, and it has the ability to transform us from the inside out. And so God, we submit ourselves to the counsel of your word. It's your word that brings life. It's your word that brings freedom. It's your word that brings truth. And so God, you are the author and the finisher of our faith. And so we trust you and your word for our lives. Speak to us now. We are listening in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, everybody shouted. Everybody shouted? Amen. Amen. Uh, How many of you in this room are a fan of report cards? Report cards, you love report cards. Okay, how many of you, show of hands, would say, I hate report cards. I'm not about them. Come on, don't leave me hanging. How many of you are like, nope, get out. Okay, so you in the second service, none of you are fans of report cards. Um, The first service were all fans of report cards. They were overachievers, and that's why they're at 915. And so... uh, I failed skipping. As one of my report cards says, you can ask my mom, she's been here in the first two services if you asked her. We, we legitimately got a report card that said Jason failed skipping. Um, I was never made aware that this was a subject matter that we were actually studying. Um, so apparently there was a rogue teacher running around just paying attention to small children who can't skip and then failing them. So um, don't go to that school. Anyways, uh, I figured out by, by a report card that I uh, failed skipping. Um, I found out in junior high school that I wasn't the best at School. Um, and so throughout my, throughout my education, junior high school, elementary school, high school, uh, life in general, the report cards haven't always been the best. I will say this, like I did, I did fairly well in Bible college, okay? Just so you all know, I did, I did fairly well in Bible college. Like C minus at best, no, I'm just like, I'm just like. Um, I got into Bible college and I fell in love with what I was learning. How many of you know when you fall in love with something, it changes the way that you put yourself to it? So, um, so I, fell, I fell in love with the gospel. I fell in love with the Bible. I fell in love with theology. And I did really well uh, in, in Bible college. But here, here's the thing about it. I don't like report cards. And here's why. Mainly because I don't test well. Does anybody else like me? Like, you don't test very well. Like, if somebody puts a test in, like, you, you can know all the information. You will fail it. Like, you just get nervous, crazy. This is why I still have a license that's not valid. Um, I'm just kidding. That was a joke. Uh, some people, Erica, she's a great test taker. If you tell Erica you're going to have a test for her, she, she, will, like, she will cram it all in, and she can t- destroy tests. She's great. We're very, we're very different people. But um, I don't like getting report cards about things because they tell us this right here. They show us where we're doing well and where we're not doing well. I mean, isn't that what it's really about? So the report card teaches us, shows us, it, it, it says, hey, here's your blind spot. Here's the things you're not the best at. Here's the things that you're exceeding at, you're doing well at. But then there's some things that maybe you're not doing the best at and we need to up the game a little bit. That's what this particular few chapters that we're gonna be working through over the next few weeks is to these seven churches. The letter that is given to them is the report card of Jesus for them. How many of you would be thrilled about that? To know that Jesus was giving you a report card? 
Wouldn't that be fun? Could you imagine if today we're like, hey, Jesus is all gonna get, like, we're gonna all get a report card from Jesus. And even better, Jason's gonna read it out loud in front of everybody. <laughs> You're like, nope, I'm leaving that church, peace. <laughs> that's what this was. So the, the, the letter that's given, the letter of Revelation, it wasn't seven independent letters given to these seven churches. It was one letter, it was one portion of this larger letter, Revelation, that was to be read out. And it was read in front of each of the seven churches. So the other churches knew the other church's business. They knew where they were on about things and where they were off about things. And so these seven churches, there's a lot that we're gonna learn from them over the next few weeks that are really important, okay? So here's, here's some things that I need us to understand context really quick. The evaluation of each church is given from the office seat of Christ, which is his supreme lordship. That's why we read Revelation 1, 9 through 20 first. Because Revelation 1, 9 through 20 is helping us see that Jesus is over everything. And this is really important because we live in a culture that is working really hard at trying to alter or reimagine who Jesus is and therefore trying to strip away his authority on matters of life and faith. These evaluations of each church actually continue to affirm the character, nature, values, designs, and concerns of God in matters relating to our lives and our faith. And this is why I say this, because as we read these churches, some of the dysfunctions and the things that were happening in them, they actually help us see what God still cares about. And that's really important for us as we read these letters, because how many of you would agree with me right now in the world that we're living in, there's a lot of conversation about what God really cares about and doesn't really care about. And how many of you agree with me? We're trying to switch some things and change some things and albeit even alter some of scripture or redefine what the Bible says about things like, oh, he didn't really mean that or that really didn't mean that in that letter over there. This is the last letter. God is going to tell us what he thinks about things, how he directs the churches. So he's, we're actually gonna see some of his values on, on grand display. Which brings us to another thought that we need to grab a hold of is that Jesus has a way for his church. Five of the seven churches will be commended for some of the things that they are doing and then will be reprimanded for other things that they are doing. Only two of the seven churches will be only commended. That's it. And we're gonna talk about those. We're gonna pair those churches together and we're gonna look at all the beautiful things that they were doing. But here's what I want us to know. Jesus holds no punches back when it comes to the honest assessment of each of these churches. Okay? The assessments of these churches really do tell us what and who we should be as a community of faith in a hostile and ever decaying cultural reality and context. As well, we're gonna see in, this, in these sections the overlapping of issues. Some of the churches were dealing with the same things. So I'm not gonna cover it all in one fail swoop. We're gonna tackle different things in different moments over the next few weeks. Does that work with everybody? And so if we read something, he's like, why is he not touching on that? We will touch on it. We're gonna do a deep dive into these seven churches. And then, as I just said earlier, these churches were real churches with real locations. Okay? We must notice that these churches are identified by their regional scope, not by their branding or uniqueness. These churches were identified by who they were reaching. Each of these churches was located along the Roman postal route, each having been identified and excavated by archaeologists in what is now modern-day Turkey. So we have the remains of these churches. These are real churches that had real people in them that were brought real correction and real encouragement. So with all that being said... Let's go to Revelation chapter two, verses one to seven, as we look at the first church, the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus. Everybody say, buckle your seatbelt. Says this, right to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Pause, we're hitting the pause button really quick. More information, angel. 
Well, what, what was he talking about here? There's about five different concepts that theologians and scholars believe or are, are assessing towards this term angel right here. I want to speak about two of them because I think that they're probably the closest to the reality of what we're dealing with. Here's the first assessment. The first assessment when it says write to the angel, Jesus was literally saying, I'm writing to a real angel. Okay? Now this is not weird for Revelation because we're dealing with demons and kingdoms and heavenly realms, so on and so forth. So there was this idea that, that this information and this correction was being brought to a guardian angel of such to each of these churches. That's one such theory. These are still theories because we don't have a lot of information and designation about these. Here's the second theory. The second theory is that this term angel was actually given to represent the, the ecclesiastical authority or shepherd of that church. And it was designated as a positive guardianship over the church, making sure that doctrine, theology, et cetera, et cetera, was being well kept. Does that make sense? And so those are the two that, at least for me, I settle well with. I haven't landed on a, on a, on a firm stance on this, but I, I think it, it bears an understanding for us to understand what, what is he talking about when he says, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Is that good for everybody? Yeah. All right. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is what he says to Ephesus. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. Come on, how many of you say that's a good report card right there? That's some good stuff. But! How many of you love it when the Bible throws a but in there? He says this, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember how far you have fallen and repent and do the works that you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet, you do have this. He's like, boom. Now, encouragement, Caleb moment again. He says, but you have this. You hate the practices of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Thanks, Jesus. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Man, what a report card. Church, you do some things really, really well. I'm so, I'm so pumped to see what it is that you're doing. But we got, we, got to, we got to correct some things. And we got to correct one major thing. You have lost your first love. Think about that assessment. Could you imagine? You have lost what drove you in the first place. See, at the time of writing Revelation, Ephesus would have found itself to be a progressive and bustling city with about 100 to 250,000 people in it. It was a city of influence and affluence, and at the same time, it was a city of great poverty and injustice. It was a city involved in witchcraft, paganism, mystical idolatry, and the worship of a pantheon of gods. Ephesus was a beautiful city that contained great architecture and temples in order to create centralized worship specifically for Artemis. This particular temple for her worship would include a 25,000 seat amphitheater for gatherings of such worship. Could you imagine? They built a 25,000 seat auditorium for Artemis to be worshiped. So it shows you what the central reality was that, 
that the, that the believers in Ephesus were facing and they were dealing with. That was the context of their missional work. That was the context of what it is that they were, they were called to engage in. How many of you would agree with me? That'd be pretty, that'd be, that's a big deal. To know that a 25,000 seat auditorium was built for the worship of Artemis. And that was the context of what they were dealing with. This was the city that hosted the great work of Paul, Timothy, Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. And according to church tradition, the apostle John would make his residence here in the latter years of his life. In this city, there was a church, the church that is only identified as the church in Ephesus. It was a church that was reaching people. It was a church that worked hard at keeping strong doctrine and theology at its core. And as Revelation would point out, it was a church that resisted the false apostles and prophets of the day. To the point they resisted with such vigor that Jesus would say, I'm glad that you hate the things that I hate. How many of you, that's strong words. We're gonna talk about the practices of the Nicolaitans and Balaam and Jezebel in a little while. Party! And Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for a lot of different things. They labor, they endure, they do not tolerate evil people, and they test what is brought before them in teaching and in culture. They persevere and they endure hardship for Jesus' namesake, and they haven't grown weary in doing it. How many of you would say, man, doing some of that stuff, you grow weary? You you grow tired in, in, in doing some things. But there's some things that this church doesn't do so well. I have this against you, Jesus says, that you've lost your first love. We look to the New American Commentary to help us with the prognosis of the Ephesian church. Listen to what it says. What is in view in the church of Ephesus is a question of motivation and priority. Certainly one can do all the right things and yet do them for an inadequate or ignoble reason. One can even do the right things for some of the right reasons but fail in the service of the Lord in terms of the noblest reasoning. Perhaps Ephesus has succeeded well in many areas, but listen to this. This is what the commentary says. But the maintenance of that success had become more important than the motivation for service. Namely, the love for Christ. In other words, the Ephesian church loved what they did, but forgot how to love Jesus. Maybe another way to say it is this. If you're writing notes, you can put this down. We can become so enamored with the commission of Christ that we forget our love for Christ. See, if we abandon our first love, Jesus, it is impossible to do the commission of loving people. Y'all hearing me today? If we abandon the love that we have for Jesus, it becomes impossible to do the commission of loving people. Here's my concern, is that we can get so enthralled with loving people that we forget the one who gives us the love in order to love people when people get difficult. Because here's what happens. If we lose the love for the one who gives us love for the people that we're called to, we're no longer loving people, we're just doing nice things. Because there's a different love that's given to us in and through Jesus, y'all with me? And so this is what Ephesus is charged with. You've lost your first love. You've gotten so concerned, all these other things, you've lost me at the center. The author of the writer and the writer of the preacher's commentary puts it like this. Because of this issue, there was a theological, a spiritual, psychological, and even an ethical crisis in Ephesus. When we lose our first love, Jesus, we step into theological issues, spiritual issues, psychological issues, and ethical issues. Jesus directs all that. Y'all with me this morning? And this all stemmed from losing their first love. So here's what I want to do today. You're like, okay, 
losing our first love. How, how do we work through this? This is what I wanna do with us today. I wanna teach us how to fall out of love with Jesus. Can we do that today? I'm not gonna teach you how to fall in love with Jesus. I wanna teach you how to fall out of love with Jesus. I wanna teach us how to abandon our first love. Does that work with everybody? Some of you are like, I don't know. What, what's, what's happening right now? Y'all with me? Here we go, number one, every shot number one. Here's how we fall in love with Jesus. Start with a prenuptial agreement. Start with a prenuptial agreement. In other words, start out by defining and telling Jesus what he's not allowed to have of you. This is how we fall out of love with Jesus. So we're clear, I use this as, a, as an illustration. I know that all metaphors have, have holes, but I use this imagery because of the heart behind it. Here's the simplest definition, and I quote, of a prenuptial agreement. It's an agreement made between two people before marrying that establishes the rights to property and support in the event of divorce or death. This is why Hebrews chapter two, verses one to four says this, for this reason we must pay attention all the more to what we've heard so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders and various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. In other words, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, how can we neglect the salvation that we have in Jesus? It is that good. How can we stroll into it telling God what he can have and can't have of us? And that's, that's honestly how we drift. That's honestly how we, we lose our first love is we start out the journey by setting up parameters and boundaries and telling Jesus what he can and cannot have in our lives. You ever been there before? It's getting quiet in church today. Unless we come to him and we're like, God, you can have some of me. I'll give you this part. In this part, in this part, in this part, but you can't have this part, this part, and this part because I'm a better manager at me than you. Jesus didn't give his life for parts of you. He gave his life for all of you. Come on, somebody. That's not a shame thing. I think we all do it. I've done it. And listen, here's the deal. If I could be brutally honest with you, there are times in my, my walk and journey with Jesus right now that I take things back. Where I go, ah, maybe, maybe I'll do this on my own right now. You ever been there before? Yeah. Right, when he's not doing the timing thing the way that you want the timing thing done? You're like, oh, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take matters in my own hands. Or maybe when he's, not, when he's not providing the way that you wanna be provided for, and so it's like, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, do, I'm gonna do this my way. And, and there are times when things aren't going, then I, I try to, I try to pull, pull back and I set up boundaries and everything. Can I just tell you that setting up boundaries with Jesus is the worst possible thing that we can do? We don't cordon different areas off for him to have some things and other things. That's why if you wanna quickly fall out of love with Jesus, start with a prenuptial agreement. 
This is what you have. And here's what, here's what the prenuptial agreement is about. It's based on the idea that this isn't going to work out anyways. As your pastor today, I'm trying to challenge the things that cause us to think it's not going to work out. Can I just tell you, for me in our house, for my life personally, I need it to work out. I don't have a B option. I don't have another plan. I'm not the best at things. I need Jesus. I need his plan to work out. It's all got to be what it needs to be for him. There is no other way about it. I'm all in, baby. We must pay attention all the more to what we have heard. We get distracted and we lose our first love. And a lot of that distraction comes because, well, we started with a prenuptial agreement. Eric and I, just put practical words, Eric and I, divorce is not an option for, for our life. And listen, I'm not, please hear me. I'm not trying to shame or judge or, any, or anything like that. For those of us who've gone through those, I come from a broken home, so I know it really, really well. I come from homes where divorce is part of the reality. That's, that's what I'm just simply saying for her and I, when we entered into our covenant relationship, it's not an option. Okay? It's, it, it's not an option. And so we're gonna work it out. We're gonna fight it out. We're gonna go to Jesus. And when I came into faith with Jesus, Leaving that relationship is not an option. Why? Because when you're met with the beauty of that gift, come on, some, how do you, like the writer of Hebrews, how do you leave that behind? How do you taste the goodness of God and then be like, nah, this is so much better? How can you eat steak and then go back to salad? I'm, I'm sorry. Come on, can I get an amen to church today? <laughs> it's, are y'all hearing my heart today? See, the Ephesian church, they lost, that, that, that was the indictment upon them. They lost their first love. They, fought, they lost their first love. In 1934, Protestant Christians were facing the harsh reality of World War and they were facing the pressure from the German Reich to turn their church and the churches across Germany into churches that were led by and organized around the idea of the Fuhrer or Hitler as the supreme lord of it. Across history, we've seen the church face historical moments where different Worldly ideologies are brought into it, working to transform from Jesus-centric to people-centric. And so in this moment, as they're facing the brutality of war, these churches, if they accepted Hitler as the, as the Lord or the German prophet in this sense, the one who was guiding and guarding everything, what he was going to do is he was going to make sure that the Jewish people were not just excommunicated, but eventually brought to their death and in through his proper organizing of things. And think about this. The church in Germany participated in some of the great atrocities that we know in history. How is that possible? It's possible when we lose our first love. Yeah. Oh, come on, somebody. I said it's possible when we lose our first love. Yeah. So this is what happens. And through history, we read that in 1934, 
a declaration would be made. It's called the Barman Declaration. And it would take place in order to ratify, once again, the church's proper allegiance to Christ-centric doctrine, theology, and methodology. The Barman Declaration would, would say this. It would expressively cancel the claim that other powers apart from Christ would be sources of God's revelation and salvation. And just before listing the expressed points of their confession, this council would define core evangelical truths, this is what they would write. Listen, listen to this. This is what they wrote in this declaration. In view of the heirs of the German Christians and the present Reich church administration, they're going at Hitler right now. I want you to, they, they have the potential to die over this declaration. This is what they say. The Reich administration, which is ravaging the church and at the same time also shattering the union, the unity of the German evangelical church. This is what we confess. We confess these following evangelical truths. They would go on to write Article 1 of the Barman Declaration. This is what they write. Jesus Christ is the one word we have to hear and obey both in life and in death. All healthy theology, ethics, and Austro-Christian psychology begin with the discovery of the first love which is revealed in Jesus Christ. They would then quote John, and they would say, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son. What were they saying? Nothing is gonna change about our churches because Jesus is the center of them. We will not allow anything else to take the center portion of who we worship and define our lives around no ideology no economy no party nothing Jesus and only Jesus about four people let's say that again Jesus and only Jesus not a man with a gift not a team with different abilities come on Jesus and only Jesus not a brand not a this not a Jesus and only Jesus, not a building, not lights, not self, not things, Jesus, and only Jesus. Number two, the first way to fall out of love with Jesus is start with a predeptual agreement. The second way is that we begin with communion, but get busy with commission. We begin with communion, but get busy with commission. Every shout busy. Ever shout busy? busy? Ever shout busy? busy. Come on, someone shout busy like you're busy? Busy. busy. Come on, show a therapeutic moment. How many of us have told somebody this week that we're busy? Come on, show hands. Almost all of us. Many of us. And some of you just aren't going to admit it, and that's fine. You're busy not admitting it. Um, I, I talk a lot about, we've talked a lot about busy around here. Uh, busy is a hard thing. We, uh, people think we're busier than we are, which is always fun, because little do you know we're actually not as busy as you think we are, so that's our secret. <laughs> We've determined in our lives that we're not going to be busy, we're going to be intentional. Yeah. And that's a very different reality. Yeah. We're not going to be busy, we're going to be, we're going to be intentional, all right? And this is how I define intentional. If you, if you want my definition, this is what intentional is for us. Intentional is doing what I prioritize, doing what I commit to, stewarding what I'm responsible for, and doing what only I am called to. And I want to say this. There are two things that none of you in this room can do that only I can do. 
I'm the best at them. Like, nobody else is good as me at these two things. None of you. You're all horrible at these two things that only I am great at. Being the husband to my wife and the father to my children. Okay? That's it. I say that I'm being emphatic because I want you to get the illustration. Because anybody can take this position. Anybody, anybody can take this position. Listen, y'all. There's people who are great, way greater speakers than I am. Who have way less ADD than I do. <laughs> the whole team was like, yeah, that's true, actually. <laughs> My concern, as was the concern in Ephesus, is that the church got so busy with the work that they lost their wonder. And listen to the indictment. He says, I know you've persevered and you've endured hardships for the sake of my name and you haven't even grown weary. How many of you agree with me the reason that we have a tendency to get frustrated is it, with busyness is because we're finally tired by it. Here's the, the Ephesian church. They weren't tired and they're busy. They'd almost become so conditioned to it that they could keep on running in it. So Jesus' concern was like, you guys are gonna keep on running. You're gonna keep on going hard. With me, we tend to give up on busy once we kind of go like, man, I'm tired and worn out. These guys were running so well and so hard that they may not even get tired and worn out. So they were in a different place. So, so Jesus had to challenge them at the end of the day. I'm being told, take this microphone right here. So Jesus had to challenge them and, and he had to say to them, hey, listen, I need, you to, I need you to come back. I need you to get less distracted and less busy because I need your focus to be on me. And this is really important for us because I think the church in the modern world right now gets really focused on being busy. How many of you agree with me on that? We get focused in our programs. We get focused on the things that we love doing. We get focused on the things that, we, that make us feel good when we're doing them. That sometimes we forget to commune with the one that authors all of these things. We get so caught up in the, in the work load. See, Jesus isn't advocating for the denial and the abdication of tasks, but rather that which is soul diminishing and kingdom avoidant. Busy. We just read a stat the other day. Eric and I were reading an article uh, on the drive to the airport with each other. We just read a stat the other day that the average American, according to this study, spends seven hours a day online. Seven hours. They didn't even designate what those things were. Just seven hours online. Seven hours online. Think about that. And then we say we're busy. Seven hours. What if we spent, just like, let's just be wilding out for a second. What if we spent seven hours in God's word? I'm just saying what would happen. Like, I know that sounds fanatical. That sounds crazy. You zealot. Um, <laughs> right? That sounds nuts. It's the third service, guys. Come on, right? Like, I only use it as an illustration. That's not the expectation. God's not like, I want you in my word seven hours a day. I'm just wondering what would happen. Like, is it possible that the transformation you and I are looking for in our lives would come if we would just get, like, I'm zoning in. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna focus my life. I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna commune for a minute with you, God. 
I'm gonna sit and I'm gonna be with you. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be busy. I have a clock down here counting me down. It's the literal only demon in our church right now <laughs> is that clock. Every time it clicks, it's ha 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 But isn't that the indictment? That we put God on our clock. Like it's been 17 minutes of worship. Cue Jason now. We know he's long-winded, so let's give him 45 today. <laughs> Game's starting now. Break service. Y'all see what I'm talking about? Like I told you, I told you, I'm not trying to be a great speaker today. I'm trying to be your pastor today. Because the, 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 the church in Ephesus was charged with this. You've lost your first love. And it's so easy to think that that, that that can't happen to me. It can. Number three. Here's the third way to fall out of love with Jesus. Is allow romance to become regiment. Allow romance to become regiment. Eric and I got married almost 18 years ago in January. We celebrate 18 years. And I remember, got married, we had this big old celebration. There was like 400 people at our wedding. It was insane. Most of them I didn't know. <laughs> Somebody threw an invite to the church and everybody just showed up. It was awesome. It was a party, it was a lot of fun. We had chicken wings, meatballs. Right? That's awesome. This is before Pinterest. Y'all, now, your weddings are wilding out. We had chicken wings and meatballs. And uh, she wanted to only have big band music, so Frank Sinatra for the entire wedding, because it was her wedding, not mine. I had one song choice. Um, so I chose Beat It by Michael Jackson. That's a real thing. And then we did a dance-off with the guys and the girls. I said, beat it, beat it. It was so fun. <laughs> the wedding got over, and we, we left in our car, and we weren't heading to our honeymoon for another day and a bit. And so we went home, went to the apartment that we'd rented to build a life together. It's our wedding night. We get back to the, to the apartment. And this is what we did. We ordered pizza. Because I was hungry. Because the bride and the groom don't eat at weddings. They talk. And I'll tell you what. It was one of the most romantic things we've ever done. We ate pizza and we'd opened up gifts and got ready to leave on our honeymoon. We sat on the floor in our apartment. I'll tell you that story, not, not to do anything but to help us understand what it means to like have romance. And you can see how all these connect together. You start off by cordoning off parts and pieces of you that Jesus is not allowed to have. And then instead of communing, we get busy with commission. We start doing a bunch of things instead of being and then we lose the romance of it all. We lose the, the, the thing that, that brought us together in the first place. 
See, all throughout scripture, the Bible tells us that the church is the bride of Christ. That there should be this divine and grand romance that's taking place. See, Jesus wants to be with his church. Every single weekend that we gather, church, I need you to hear this, that this is a moment that we're not just gathering to have an event. This is a moment where Jesus is saying, I wanna be with you. I wanna be in proximity with you. His presence wants to linger here. The Spirit of God wants to move across the room and in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. And so we try to linger for just a few moments if we could linger in His presence. Why? Because it's a divine romance. It's a heavenly romance. It's this beautiful picture of what it means to engage with Him. And this is the promise that we're told that when we gather together, he's gonna be in our midst. So this is why, and I'm spending a lot of time to affirm the whys of a lot of things that we do. We don't do what we do in worship so that a bunch of people with great instrument skills can play. They could gig it somewhere else. This right here is the soundtrack to our divine romance. It's setting the mood. It's setting up the moment. And that's why and all of a sudden certain, certain things, when, when the team starts singing, how great is our God, and all of a sudden the church responds, why? Because you sense something. Come on, is anybody with me? You, you feel something. You're experiencing something, and it's the romance between us, the bride that Jesus loves and gave his life for, and him, who says one day I'm coming back for it. And so until then, I want you to prepare. I want you to do everything that you can in order to continue to become the bride, the beautiful thing that I want you to become. So please, oh please, oh please, don't get lost in the becoming that you forget me in the midst of it. Don't get so lost with the being that you lose what it is that you and I have because I'm your savior. I died for you. I gave my life for you because I love you that much. It's a divine romance. So we gotta learn to be the type of church and the type of people, when I say church, I'm not talking about the building, guys. I'm talking about you and me, the ones who are sitting in these seats today, across all of our services. For some of you, there's people that are a part of this beautiful community that you haven't seen today because they were in the other two, but all joined together. There's a lot of people today who entered into communion with Jesus. So Jesus says to Ephesus, hey, I need you to come back to your first love. Writer David Bennett put it like this. He says, when Jesus Christ is regulated to a hobby for middle-class families and not allowed to be the Lord of our entire lives, we are bound to destroy the witness of his gospel. What the Western church needs is a new identity that recognizes that Jesus isn't just a peripheral interest, he's the center of everything. Here's what we're gonna discover over these next few weeks. There's a little bit 
of each church in us. There's a little bit of Ephesus in each of us. There's a little bit of Pergamum in each of us. There's a little bit of Sardis in each of us. There's a little bit of Laodicea in each of us. And for some of these churches, they're gonna hit harder than other ones. But for today, and the point of today is this right here. Church, can we make sure that we do not lose our first love? And his name is Jesus. And the church shouted. Amen. I'm gonna ask everybody to stand to your feet right now as we get ready to close. Ask everybody to bow your head and close your eyes in this moment. Two questions I wanna ask today. Two groups of people that got some things we gotta just kind of flesh out in these last few minutes. First group of people is this. You might be sitting in here today and you'd say, man, Jason, that's me. I've lost my first love. I've gotten cold, I've gotten distant. I'm doing all of these things. I show up and I serve or I give. I even read my Bible. I do, but the motive behind it is off. And to you, I would say that Jesus is calling back to you today, say, hey, draw close to me again. Come back to your first love. Remember what it is that drew you to him in the first place. And if that's you today, I just wanna pray for you. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand. I just wanna give everybody a, a place to be able to just work this out internally. Jesus, right now, for all of us, that those statements are true of. For those of us who have found ourselves distant from our first love, God, we repent and we once again affirm that you are the center and the reason for our life. Our salvation and eternity is in your hands. God, we know that we don't have to earn any of that. But God, I pray that you would once again just be placed back into the center of it all. God, that you would be the motivation and the desire behind everything that we do and say and everything that we live out, God. I thank you that you're working in our lives right now. And we once again affirm that we're gonna follow you all the days of our lives in Jesus' name. The second group I wanna speak to today is maybe those of us in the room who have yet to say yes to Jesus. Maybe you'd say today, man, Jason, uh, I've been here for the past couple weeks. I've been kicking the tires of faith and trying to figure this whole thing out, but man, this Jesus that you keep on talking about, I wanna give my life to him, I wanna follow him. I wanna say yes to him. And if that's you today, I wanna pray a prayer with you today, all of us together so we don't leave you out. And maybe right now you would know like something's changing, something's been changing, something is, is, is like a deep thing has been working in your heart and your mind over the past little while. And, and that, that's God just beckoning to you saying, hey, choose me. So with every head bowed and every eye closed in this moment, would you all just repeat this prayer after me? And especially those of you who today would say, man, I'm, I wanna say yes to Jesus. Come on, as loud as you can, everybody say, Jesus, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you my past. I'm giving you my right now. And I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me, change me, make me new. And I declare in this moment that I'm gonna follow you 
all the days of my life. Today, I'm deciding to give you all of me. I'm not holding anything back. It is all yours. I am following you today. In Jesus' name.